0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19, Exodus 19. The guys have some Bibles. You'll need a Bible to follow along. So as they make their way to the back, if you need one, just get their attention. And they'll get that Bible to you, marked for you at Exodus 19. You can keep that as our gift to you because we want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. Exodus 19. Now back when I had a real job, a real job as a computer programmer. One of the places that I worked in Ann Arbor was a software company that was founded by two former Ford employees, one of whom who had grown up in Lincoln Park and never forgot her roots, even though the company had done quite well. Although Gail started and owned the company, she would bring her lunch in a paper bag and often come into the cafeteria and sit down with the employees to talk. I had occasion to speak with her that way several times. And during one of those, she made a statement about God that has stuck with me. You see, she knew that I was attending seminary while working that job, and she would sometimes ask about my studies, which would then lead us to a discussion about the Bible and spiritual matters. She'd grown up in a Methodist church in Lincoln Park, and she said this about her understanding of God. She said, you know, I remember Sunday school... And being afraid of the God of the Old Testament. Jesus in the New Testament is meek and mild and loving, but in the Old Testament, God is always angry and killing people. And then she asked, Aren't the gods of the Old Testament and New Testament two different guys? Now, many of us have that misunderstanding about the way the Bible presents God. That the Old Testament presents a God who is moody and temperamental and he needs to be appeased by sacrifices all the time. And if you step out of line, then watch out. passages like the one to which I've asked you to turn help to give that impression if they are not understood properly. I've asked you to turn to Exodus 19, verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned. Or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke And the voice of God answered him. Now the scene is that Moses has now returned to the place where God had first met with him back in Exodus chapter 3. Many of you will remember the burning bush incident. And there God told Moses to go to Egypt and command that Pharaoh let my people go. And then the intervening chapters from chapter 3 now to chapter 19... Tell us how that happened, that God did indeed rescue them from 430 years of bondage in Egypt. And he had by this time performed that great miracle of parting the sea so that they could escape the pursuing Egyptians. And now, according to verse 1 of chapter 19, it's been three months after they had left Egypt, and Moses is no longer now alone with God like he was back in chapter 3, speaking to him as he was then. But now Moses is leading Two million people to a land that God had promised to Abraham 500 years earlier. Two million people. Now, where do we get that? Numbers chapter 1 in verse 46. Numbers 146 says that there were 603,550 adult men who left Egypt in the Exodus. 603,550. Now, if those men had wives, as they undoubtedly did, then that's 1.2 million adults. That doesn't include the children. And that's why then most estimates are that Moses is now leading a group of 2 million people. But why all the smoke and the fire and the warning and the trembling? Why all of that? Well, notice the verse just before the one that I started reading. We started reading in verse 10. Notice verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. Here's why. So that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. So God here, before he does all of that, before all of the trembling mountain and the people trembling before it, and the lightning and the thunder and all, before all of that, God gives one of the reasons that that's going to happen so that the people will hear me speaking with you, Moses, and they will trust you as their leader. So one purpose was to make clear who it was that was speaking to Moses, namely God, and to reaffirm yet again that Moses is God's representative. But another purpose for all of that, all of that drama, is found in the next chapter. You'll turn over to chapter 20 and verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning, and they heard the trumpet, and they saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance, and they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we'll die. Notice verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you. Now again, notice the words, so that. Here's the purpose, again, another purpose. So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So when verse 20 says, God has come to test you. God has come to show by this, to prove by this that you are sinful So that you are reminded of that and therefore helped by that reminder to not sin further. And this verse contrasts two types of fear. It says, do not be afraid. And then it says the the fear of God. Just as an aside, did you know that the most oft-given command in the entire Bible is do not be afraid? Do not fear. And here we have it yet again. Do not be afraid. But it's that's one type of fear, and then the purpose that God has for this, the fear that will be with you to keep you from sinning, is yet another. So there are these two contrasting types of fear. One, the tormenting fear that they were experiencing, which comes from conscious guilt or an unwarranted alarm, and then it leads to bondage. That the fear and do not be that's the fear in do not be afraid. And then there's this other type of fear which promotes and demonstrates the presence of an attitude of complete trust and belief in God. That's what's meant then in the second dimension of fear, so that the fear of the Lord will keep you from sinning. That type of fear will keep us from sinning and is at the heart of what the Old Testament's wisdom books mean. When they say often, like in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So God does all of that drama at Sinai for two purposes. To affirm Moses' leadership and to show the people God's holiness and to keep them from sinning. But all of that goes back to a still more fundamental purpose. And that's found in verse 3 of chapter 19. Before all of that, this is what God said to Moses. Verse 3, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You see, friends, before the smoke and the fire and the thunder and the lightning. Which are all for a good purpose. There is this overarching purpose of God calling and forming a people that will be his special possession. A people on whom he will especially set his love and he will move heaven and earth on their behalf all of the stuff that seems frightening and is frightening for sinners in the presence of a holy God is all done to give us a proper fear and reverence before the Lord because of this good ultimate desire on God's part and this is not just for the Old Testament nation of Israel those phrases from Exodus chapter 19 that say you will be my treasured possession and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation for me This is repeated in the New Testament of people like us who have come to God through Jesus. First Peter chapter two says you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We often say that God does all things for our good and his glory. In fact, we say it often enough that it can become trite and lose its meaning. But friends, it is absolutely true. And all the things that God does for our good and his glory includes laying down the law. The law that he gave to his people in the first part of your Bible in the Old Testament. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see in Acts chapter twenty. Each of those laws one by one. But all of this that God does for our good and his glory, including his laying down of the law, is really his laying down the love. And that's what we've then titled this series on the Ten Commandments, Commandments—a series that we begin today. And in this opening message, I want you to see some of God's good purposes for giving these commandments to his people. Let's bow now and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you that we're here because we're here because of you. It's you who have worked in our circumstances so that we are able to be here. It is you who has worked in our hearts to cause us to want to be here. It is you who has given us your word so that we can have it in front of us and be instructed by it. So Lord, help us now. In this time, to concentrate our minds upon what you say to us and open our hearts so that we will be changed by it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, it's in the setting that we've just recounted that God gives his law to his people as recorded in Exodus chapter 20, in which we're going to see over these next several weeks. And he says there things that you're familiar with, things like, you'll have no other gods before me. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You will not lie, murder, steal, commit adultery, and so on. But it's important to note why the law of God was given. It was given to God's people. To those who had believed God and had applied the blood to their doorpost and were saved from God's judgment. Do you remember what that's about? When God with a mighty hand brought them out of Egypt... And God brought the plagues upon Egypt, the last of those ten plagues being the plague of death. And the one way for that plague to be escaped was to place the blood of an animal upon the doorpost of the home. And to this day, thus it's called the Passover. God says, I will pass over you when I see when I see the blood. And now these are people who have done that. These are people who have believed that. And here's why that's important. The law of God was never intended to be a ladder ladder. For unsaved people to get to heaven. Rather, it was to be a pattern of life for God's people. God is not saying, I give these commandments and you're to keep them to become my people. No, he says, I give these and you keep them because you are my people. In fact, if the people were meant to be saved by keeping the law, then what do we make of Abraham? Who the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness, going back 500 years before the giving of the law to Moses. And in fact, that's part of Paul's argument in the book of Galatians that we are not saved by the law and never have been. We're going to see a lot of laws in the weeks to come, so no, but please know for now that it's not the means of salvation. The law was not only not intended to be used as a way to get to heaven. In fact, it cannot serve as a way for people to get to heaven for the simple reason that no one can keep it perfectly. Many people live under the misconception that they can make themselves acceptable to God by keeping the rules. But we're going to see this morning and in the weeks ahead that that's not the case. This morning, I want you to see three things. And we have these for you in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. And the first of those three things about God's law is this. The law affirms the glory of God. The law affirms the glory of God. In the New Testament, sin is defined in two ways. One way is given in Romans 3.23, which says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, that's a much-used verse. Many of us learned that. If perhaps we learned the Romans' road to the plan of salvation, that's where you start. In the book of Romans, it has everything you need to give someone the gospel, but you start there, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what does that mean? I say in your outline, it means that the character of God is our standard. The character of God is our standard. In Romans 3.23, sin is something that misses the standard The standard which is called the glory of God. And God's glory in scripture is his character. Who he is. What he is like. So it's saying that sin is failing to be like God in who he is. God is holy. God is truth. God is love. So sin is failing to be like God in the way we think, talk, and act. Falling short of the character of God or the glory of God. but There's another definition of sin that's found in 1 John. And it says this, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And so I say in your outline, not only is the character of God our standard, the law of God is our standard. The law of God is our standard. Now, in 1 John 3, sin has to do with breaking the law of God, but we just saw that sin is falling short of the glory of God. So how do those two fit together? Author Colin Smith provides a good explanation of this and several insights that I'll share in a bit. If you put these two together, that sin is falling short of the glory of God and sin is breaking the law of God, then you find something interesting. If sin is on the one hand falling short of the glory of God and it's breaking the law, then we may reasonably conclude that the law is an expression of God's glory. The law is an expression of God's character. And in fact, every one of the Ten Commandments reflects some aspect of the character of God. Why should you have no other gods before me? Because he is God. There is no one like him in his character. No one who can take his place. Why should we make no graven image of God? Because any way we depict him will detract from his glory. Why should we obey father and mother? Because he is the one from whom all fatherhood takes its name and all authority derives from him. Why no adultery? Because God is faithful. Therefore we are to be faithful why not steal because god can be trusted with all things you need not resort to taking what belongs to another why not lie because god is truth why not covet in this relentless grasping for things that most of us are tempted with because god is sufficient for our needs And so in giving the law, God is saying, if you are my people, then your lives must be modeled on who I am. And this is what your lives will look like. And then you will accurately reflect me. Now, the opposite is also true. An unfaithful people misrepresent a faithful God. Liars misrepresent the God of truth. Unforgiving people misrepresent the God of grace. As we think of his law, we should see his character. And it should move us to worship him. As we think about these restrictions, these prohibitions that God has given for his glory and yes, our good. It should move us to think about his character. And to worship him for who he is. The law affirms the glory of God. So let it lead you to worship. God's saying, if you bear my name, you must live in accordance with my character. So first of all, in your outline, the law affirms the glory of God. Second, the law announces our need for Jesus Christ. The law announces our need for Jesus Christ. Now, why these particular ten? Indeed, they reflect the glory or the character of God. God. But they also point to 10 of the most significant struggles that we will experience. I mean, parents, isn't it the case that we target rules to areas of struggle for our children? Eat your dinner. Stop messing around with it. Don't eat stuff before dinner. Don't eat junk before all of that. Why? Because that's good for you. And it's not good for you if you don't eat your dinner. Do your homework. Clean your room. Why don't we give rules like go watch TV or go online or go practice your free throws? Why? Because they'll automatically do that. You don't have to give instruction for that. And so God is giving here now things that we will especially struggle with for our good. You remember that Jesus gave a summary of the law when he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And Jesus went on, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And the truth is, friends, we all struggle to love God with all of our heart and soul And we all struggle to love our neighbor as ourself. And the Ten Commandments deal with both of those, loving God and loving neighbor. The first four of the Ten Commandments deal with love for God. God is saying, you're going to find that it's not easy to love me as God because you're going to want to be God. You'll have trouble worshiping me and speaking of me and prioritizing me. And therefore, I'm giving you these commands to remind you of these struggles that you're going to have with regard to making me supreme. And the next six of the Ten Commandments deal with love for neighbor. You're going to battle as sinful people. God is saying submission to authority. Parents are first, the first authorities in the lives of each person. And you're going to battle that early on. And then there's going to be ongoing hostility. Hostility. In interpersonal personal relationships, and killing is not just actions but attitudes, Jesus said. you remember that? You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you have hatred in your heart, you have committed murder already. You're going to have a battle for sexual purity. And so thou shalt not commit adultery. But again, it's not just the physical act of adultery. But keep your thoughts and your mind clean. Remember, Jesus said... You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you have lust in your heart, you've done so already. You're going to be tempted to exaggerate the truth. You're going to be tempted to stretch the truth. You're going to be tempted to tell a straightforward lie when it suits your purpose. You're going to battle contentment. You're going to see what the Bernsteins have. And say, I must have it too, so you shall not covet. And on it goes. And we can all relate to these battles, and God knew so. And so his law is like a light that shines under our souls, and we say, that's indeed the battle that I'm fighting. God has the ability to do this. God has the ability to give us a list of prohibitions, a list of instructions, that get right to the heart of the struggles that we're going to have. He has the ability to do this because he's an omniscient God. He's able to write a book millennia before our time to tell us exactly what we still need. So that the Bible can say of the Bible, the word of God is alive. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it divides between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow, And it's able to discern the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, the word of God is. Why? Because the God who wrote it is omniscient. And so sometimes I'll have people say after a sermon, they say, hey, you were talking to me. You knew what happened this week, didn't you? And I'm tempted to go, yeah, I'm psychic. But the truth is, I didn't. But God does. And God knows what we struggle with. And God includes it in his word. And when we then look into the mirror of God's word, then we are going to see ourselves and our struggles there. And God has given us these commands because they are particular areas that we struggle with. Even if we don't feel like we do. I mean, picture going to the dentist and getting x-rays even though you don't want to go because you're not feeling any particular pain, but you go for your annual checkup. And as he looks at those uh, results of the x-rays, he makes has a contorted look on his face. He makes some curious noises. And he's telling you there's some things wrong that you didn't know about. People go through life thinking all is okay because we do not submit to the x-ray that is the Word of God. Exodus chapter 19. In verse 7, verses 7 and 8 are actually humorous now, looking back on them. Because in verses 7 and 8, God tells the elders all of this, and they say, quote, we will do everything the Lord has said. Yikes. (laughs) We Yeah, we'll do that. We're good with that. The rest of the entire Old Testament, and in fact, God had barely finished giving the Ten Commandments when they began disobeying and putting other gods before him. So the law then has this good purpose of telling us and reminding us of what we battle with the most. In your New Testament, the great Apostle Paul said that the law played this good role in his life to show him and remind him of his sin as it does for us. He wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that the law is good if it is used lawfully, if it is used rightly. In Romans chapter 7, Paul said, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. But we are going to find it like Paul did, difficult to let God be God, difficult to love others, That's why the Bible says the law is a teacher. It's not a justifier. It doesn't give you a relationship with God, but it's a teacher to lead you to Christ. Galatians chapter 3, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified not by the law, but by believing in Christ. The law was never designed to justify us before God. Galatians chapter 2, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Instead, the law was put in charge until the real answer to our sin problem would come, and that in God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the law shows us our need for Christ. And in the scriptures, you find them pointing to the ultimate answer in Christ. And that's why Jesus said when he walked the earth, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me and have life. And so, friends, the law works like this. It's hard. It's difficult to be reminded regularly of what we should not do. But it's good because we need that reminder. So it's similar to if you've ever had the occasion of taking wallpaper down from a room and then trying to re-wallpaper it or to paint it. And you scrape all the stuff off and you're sanding it. And you do it for several hours and it looks worse than it did when you started. It takes days. But then when it's done right, the paint goes on and it sticks as it should and it goes on smoothly as it should. Likewise, the law hurts and it scrapes, but when it's applied to our hearts, it makes us receptive to Christ. The reason we need Christ is because we're sinners who need a Savior, and the law shows us that fact. And In that sense, the law is the bad news that leads to the good news. The gospel. So I've got good news for you. I've got good news for all you. You're much worse than you think. The good news is that God has given us the remedy for that fact. And it's true, it's true that we're much worse than we think, even if we feel no pain. The law affirms the glory of God. It announces our need for Christ. Lastly, the law anticipates the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel tells us that God forgives our sins, but it does not leave it there. Because God desires to change us and to restore the glory that is the character that he made us to reflect. That character, that glory was lost with the fall into sin. And so for God to restore that, we need a power that we don't possess naturally. And that's why you've heard me quote St. Augustine saying, Lord, please grant what thou dost command. Grant me the power to do what you tell me to do. And this transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's a work that was predicted in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, through the prophet Ezekiel. Where God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my commands, my decrees, and to be careful to keep my laws. Because my life, God says, will be in you, you will find that you are moved then to obey my laws. He will give us the power. So it's like a train that has rails, and these commands are rails to keep us from going astray. But those rails are useless unless the train has power in the engine to move it along. And the Holy Spirit is given to empower the believer to do what it is that God says. There was a man who was in prison because he was a thief. He had stolen all his life and all of his friends were thieves. In prison, he heard the gospel and he was saved. And when he was released, he knew that he was going to struggle with his old friends and his old habits. So the first thing he did was he went to church and he sat in the back. And in the front of the church... There were plaques, two of them with the Ten Commandments. And he says, this is the last thing I need. You shall not steal. But as the service went on and his mind wandered, he began reading from a new perspective. The command that you shall not steal became a promise. Instead of just the command you shall not steal, it became a promise. You shall not steal. Now, how is that possible? Well, words from the Bible came to his mind. You shall not steal because I've put my spirit in you. What once was a condemning command was like a promise with new possibilities. If you struggle with lies, you will not lie. If you struggle with impurity, you will not commit adultery. If you struggle with contentment in a materialistic world, you will not covet. Why? Because it's Christ in you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Sin, as Roman chapter 6 says, shall no longer be your master. Oh, to be sure, you will still feel the pull of sin, but the power of the risen Christ is in you. Satan says to you, says to me, when we sin, you've gone too far, you can't get back. But friends, the gospel does not say, come to church and do your best. No, it says this, I, God himself, will live in you and you will have my power. And that power will make the difference between being doomed to failure and having ultimate victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the law does these things. It shows us what God is like. It points us to Jesus And it shows us our need for the power that only God can give so that we have the will to fight because we are destined for victory in Christ. So here's your take-home truth. God gave us His law. And He gave us that law for our good. Now friends, you only have that power. And you only see it that way. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not commit adultery. You will only see it from that new perspective if you have the new life that only God can give. That comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. At a point in time, placed in your faith and your trust in him. Not in what you do, not in how good you are. No one is justified before God by keeping the law. And listen, if no one could be justified before God by keeping the law, then you can be sure no one's going to be justified by keeping some other list. God knows how to make a list. God made a perfect list. You're not going to improve on his list. So if the law cannot justify you, there's no list of works and rules, commandments that can justify you. The only way that you can be righteous before a holy God is because God the Son has come and done the work that you could not do for yourself. And so what do you do? We're going to pray in just a moment. You realize that you're a sinner. You've broken God's law. You've broken God's law in your thoughts and your words and your deeds. You've broken God's law by commission and omission, all of us have. We have all fallen short of the character of God. Recognize, though, that Jesus Christ lived the life that you were designed to live. He died the death that we deserve, and he did that, both of them, as our substitute, his life and his death. Repent. God, I'm going to go your way, not my way. I recognize I can only do that in your power, but I'm giving myself to you. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow. And friends, I ask you, all of us, those of you who are Christians, to bow and thank God for his law. Thank God for his word. Thank God for his ordinances, for his imperatives, telling us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. As they reflect the character of God, the glory of God, and what is good for us then if you do not know Jesus Christ, from your heart to God, you pray a prayer like this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. And I ask you to forgive me. And I give my life to you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And the Bible says, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. So our Father, we thank you again for gathering us. We thank you, Lord, for your word. These commandments that are 3,500 years old are as relevant today as they were when they were first given because they reveal the character of God, a God who does not change. And so, Lord, help us to see your character in the instructions that you give. Help us to be people who are thankful for that instruction and more important, thankful for the God that those instructions show us. Lord, help us to desire to show you in our lives in the way that we think and talk and act. Lord, we ask for your power, the power that only you can give to move us forward toward the conformity to the image of Jesus. Lord, I ask you to move upon the hearts of any who came into this room thinking that they could recommend themselves to you by what they have done. Or what they will do. Help them to see that that's completely futile. That none of us will be justified in your sight by what we do. But only by what Jesus did. We ask you, Lord, to rescue, to deliver, to save. And it is you that we will praise because it has all come from you. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.